Psalm 91 verse 1 to 6 He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A fitting, hopeful and comforting psalm for these difficult times. But there is more to the psalms than your favourites. Have you read all the 150 of them? And if you have, have you made sense of them? Today's book might just show you how. Hi, my name is Terence, and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today's book is The Psalter Reclaimed, Praying and Praising with the Psalms by Gordon Winham, 208 pages, published by Crossway in 2013. Gordon Winham is a British Old Testament scholar famous for his word biblical commentary on Genesis and new international commentary on the Old Testament on Leviticus. If you browse his books in Amazon, you will see a list of academically-leaning Old Testament work. His book, The Psalter Reclaim, is a collection of eight essays drawn from separate lectures over the years. Thus, there is understandably some overlap between the essays. The first essay, What Are We Doing Singing the Psalms?, describes how the psalms were used in temple worship and later in synagogues and churches. Also, Wenham suggests that the psalms were designed to be memorized. And he doesn't just mean your favorite Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd. Some psalms were acrostic or alphabetically structured to ease recall. Psalm 119 is acrostic. It is also the longest chapter in the whole Bible with 176 verses. That's a lot to memorize. But that's not all. Based on ancient literature and practices, Wenham suggests that the entirety of the Psalms, all 2,527 verses, could be intended to be stored in memory, which makes your memorization of Psalm 23 a lot less impressive now. You could counter that the ancients had to memorize because they had no Bible. There was no printing press. So obviously, everything had to be stored in memory. But memorization has its own reward, as Wenham writes, I quote, As a reader memorizes a text, he becomes textualized. That is, he embodies the work he has committed to memory, end quote. This sounds like the act of eating the bread of life, or living out what is meant to abide in him as he abides in us. We embody the word that we have committed to memory. Through speech act theory, Wenham shows the increasing level of involvement, moving from a lower level of involvement when we listen to a sermon, to a higher level when we say amen to that sermon, to an even higher level of involvement when we sing or pray the psalms. In our experience, we know that our songs shape the church. What Wenham did in his first essay is to show that speech act theory applied on the Psalms proves our experience is biblically supported. 
that should be a frightening and or promising prospect to church and worship leaders. The second essay is titled Praying the Psalms. Wenham lists the type of psalms, psalms of praise, lament, penitential, and messianic psalms. The book of psalms is more than everything that has breath. Praise the Lord! It contains a spectrum of emotions, from joy to grief. The wide variety of psalms points to a much wider biblical response to the human experience. However, for an essay titled Praying the the Psalms, Wenham is too heavy on the variety of psalms and why they're important, but too light on how to pray with them. How does a Christian pray the psalms in celebrating a newborn or mourning a death? How do we pray the psalms in COVID-19 or Afghanistan, in marriage or in our careers? I expected this chapter to be more practical, like Donald Whitney's Praying the Bible. In his book, Whitney shows readers how to pray our everyday prayers in an always fresh way. For example, every day I pray with my children, I pray for my children's salvation. Today I read Psalm 23. From Psalm 23, I pray, The Lord is my shepherd. May you, O God, be the shepherd of my children. And I continue praying to God using the words from that psalm. Now, if what I describe piques your interest, I encourage you to search for Praying the Bible. You will find Whitney's book, uh, some articles, and also videos. Coming back to the Psalter Reclaim, the third essay in this collection is the most eye-opening, reading the psalms canonically. canonically. What does canonically mean? Imagine if I printed uh, each psalm on separate playing cards. So I will have 150 cards. For suits, instead of diamonds, clubs, hearts and spades, we would have praises, laments, penitentials and messianic. Now I deal all the cards in front of you. And I take a pen and label the cards, Psalm 1, 2, 3, until 150. Eventually, what you have in front of you on the table is all 150 psalms labelled accordingly. Some scholars say that there is no method in the arrangement of the psalms. The cards were dealt randomly. Psalm 103 being in front of Psalm 104 is a coincidence. Accordingly, the appropriate way to interpret a psalm is to just take one card off the table and find out everything you can about that one card everything you can about that one psalm. We ignore the numbering, we ignore the heading, we ignore its position in the book. The canonical approach okay, says something different. While it doesn't dispute studying the psalm itself, it asserts that the cards were not laid out randomly. Similar to how you would arrange a playlist in Spotify, one playlist is different from another, So we say there may be a story behind the playlist or behind the arrangement. The canonical approach says that the editors have arranged it so that there is a story to tell from book 1 to book 5. Yes, there are five books in the Psalms. And book 3 ends with Psalm 89, which is a lament. Wenham writes, I quote, Books 4 and 5 respond to the lament of Psalm 89, with the call to trust in the Lord's rule, not in human rulers. 
without giving up the hope in the eternity of the Davidic covenant. End quote. There are more insights to using a canonical approach, but the main thing is, as Wenham puts it, I quote, if, as I think has been demonstrated, the Psalms have been arranged thematically by title and by keywords to form a deliberate sequence, it is imperative to read one Psalm in the context of the whole collection and, in particular, in relationship to its near neighbours. End quote. If this is the first time you have heard of this way of reading the Psalms, then you should buy me coffee, because I have just introduced you to a brand new way of reading the Psalms that will last a lifetime. Previously, you thought the only way was to pick and choose one out of a set. Today, you learned that it can be read from the first to the last, knowing that there might be a story behind the sequence for you to discover. The fourth essay is reading the Psalms messianically. Some scholars argue that the king in the messianic Psalms is not referring to a future messiah. The king mentioned is a historical king who lived in those ancient times. On the cross, when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting the first line of Psalm 22. However, according to these scholars, Jesus was not claiming a prophetic fulfillment. He was simply quoting a song, just like how we would pick a song to sing to fit an occasion. Wenham quotes Hans Joachim Krauss, a proponent of this view, I quote, Jesus, by praying this psalm on the cross, enters into the deepest suffering of God-forsakenness that those who pray the Old Testament experience. That is, Jesus declares his solidarity with the whole fullness of suffering. End quote. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that Jesus was merely declaring his solidarity with the whole fullness of suffering, rather than explicitly fulfilling prophecy and making a theological point? Well, to me, uh, such talk sounds like a rationalistic reluctance to admit supernatural prophecy. In this essay, Gordon Winham sidesteps the question of the original setting in Psalm 22, and he re-emphasizes the prophetic fulfillment. I quote, We can read it historically as a lament of a royal figure on the verge of death with his enemies looking on, hoping for his imminent demise. But the New Testament clearly sees it as more fully realized in the crucifixion. End quote. And later he concludes, This seems to me an excellent case of census plenior, of realizing the full meaning of the psalm long after it was first written and the crucifixion had been seen. End quote. Oh dear, oh no. Census plenior. If you listen to my previous review of Recovering the Unity of the Bible by Walter C. Kaiser Jr., you would have heard uh, me wrestling with this census plenior or this idea that verses can have more than one meaning. Kaiser insisted, insisted that there is only one meaning, not two or more. Does it make a big difference? Well, if you read Kaiser and teach there is only one meaning this week, and next week you read Wenham and then teach the New Testament gives a fuller meaning to the Old Testament, you have just twisted yourself in a knot. You are inconsistent in the way you interpret the Bible. 
While I can't comment on whether there is a big or small difference, I suggest that it's good to be aware and to be deliberate on how you interpret the text. We are now halfway through the book, four chapters in. Notice that I have mentioned scholars a few times and I have just discussed Bible interpretative methods. This is a scholarly book that prompts and welcomes such conversations. For the rest of the review, I will quickly go through the 5th, 7th, and 8th essay and circle back to the 6th essay because the 6th is the best of the collection. The 5th essay is The Ethics of the Psalms. In this essay, Wenham shows how neglected the Psalms are when it comes to ethics. The Psalms, just as well as Proverbs or uh, the other parts of the Old Testament, teach us so much of what is right or wrong in God's eyes. Wenham systematically goes through each of the Ten Commandments and shows us where that commandment is seen in the Psalms. Interestingly, there are a lot more Psalms condemning lying, the Ninth Commandment. Wenham suggests why, I quote, The Psalms themselves are examples of the positive use of the tongue for the praise of God. This makes the tongue's negative use to destroy one's fellow man especially reprehensible, end quote. The Psalms doesn't just amplify or echo the Ten Commandments. A main theme in the Psalms is to contrast the righteous and the wicked. Let me read someone in its entirety, and I'm sure you would agree. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That was Psalm 1. The canonical approach, which, if you remember, emphasizes on the arrangement of the Psalms, would point to someone being programmatic, uh, meaning that it would be the main theme of the entire book, which means that the theme of the entire Psalms uh, includes the way of the righteous and the wicked. If you want to know more, you'll be happy to know that Gordon Wenham wrote an entire book on this subject, Psalms as Torah, Reading Biblical Songs Ethically, 250 pages published by Baker Academic in 2012. The seventh essay is Psalm 103, The Song of Steadfast Love. If you want to know how to expound a psalm using the canonical approach, this is your chapter. I give you one, only one example insight. Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 are connected. They both start with the line, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So that is obvious. What is not so obvious is Psalm 104, 105, 106 form a set. Psalm 104 is creation. Psalm 105 tells the story of Abraham to Exodus. Psalm 106 continues from Exodus to Deuteronomy. Knowing now that Psalm 103 is a prelude to Israel's history, as seen in Psalm 104, 105, 106, this gives us a fresh insight to God's steadfast love, God's hesed in Psalm 103. 
When we read verse 8 to 9, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. When we read these uh, verses and the whole of the psalm, we also remember that the next few psalms echo and illustrate, they amplify the steadfast love of the Lord in God's dealing with Israel. So, there are more insights, but uh, we move on. If the seventh essay is an example of an exposition of one psalm, then the eighth essay, the last essay, is an example of a topical study of the psalms. The essay's title is The Nations in the Psalms, and Wenham exemplifies how topical studies should be done. If I can plead to you, and I don't just mean to you a pastor or preacher, I mean to you, the everyday Christian, if you want to know what the Bible says about any one topic, whether it's marriage, apostles, homosexuality, spiritual gifts, any topic, whether it's controversial or not, you must know what the whole, I emphasize, the whole Bible says on that topic. You should not do what many people do, which is to limit your study to a few verses and rashly conclude whatever it is that you want to conclude from those few verses. Wow, that means I'd have to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to find all the relevant verses and study them. Yes, it does. That would take a lot of time. Yes, it will. <laughs> but that's the point. We have a lifetime to be humble and to learn. And we would want to know what does God say about any particular topic. And that's why we appreciate books and uh, scholars and pastors and everyday Christians who take the time to know and to read and to meditate on what God has to say about any topic. Which is why this eighth essay is so precious in its precision. The title is not The Nations in the Bible. The title is The Nations in the Psalms. So this is a very good way to learn how to do topical study because we just focus on what the Psalms has to say about the nations. The, whether it's judgment or promise, the positive and negative aspects. So this essay is an excellent example on how to do a topical study using the canonical approach. Lastly, let's go to the sixth essay, which is the best essay in the book, the imprecatory Psalms. The Psalms are not all, bless the Lord, O my soul. There is a category of Psalms that does not bless, but rather it curses. Listen to this portion from Psalm 58. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. And this psalm ends with, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Whew. Break the teeth in their mouths. Bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Is this coming from the beloved book of Psalms or from a bloodthirsty monster? Imprecatory means to call down evil or curses. And uh, imprecatory Psalms uh, include Psalms 12, 44, 58, 83, 109, 137, and 139. 
So it's not one, two, or three psalms. There are quite a few. And they are so problematic that some churches have taken them out of their reading schedules. The idea is to skip them because the content is so out of sync with proper, quote-unquote, proper Christian teaching. So Wenham summarizes the views of various people on the imprecatory psalms. Calvin said it is right for the righteous to hate wickedness. Yet he also reminds us that it may be God's purpose to bring them into repentance. Kirkpatrick said, the sentiments shown in the imprecatory psalms do not belong in the age of Christ. So he's saying something different here, uh, from what Calvin said. Calvin and Kirkpatrick are older voices. And Wenham, in this essay, helpfully presents some contemporary thoughts from Derek Kidner, who is closer to Kirkpatrick, and Alec Mortier, who is closer to Calvin. Wenham then devotes much of the chapter to the Roman Catholic Eric Zenger's work. He explains why, I quote, Zenger's exegesis is careful, thorough, and sensible. Here, I should simply like to quote his initial plea for taking these texts seriously, if we are to understand them. He pleads for dialogue with these violent psalms, and true dialogue involves taking the other side seriously. We must understand them before we can express our disagreement. These psalms may seem very foreign to us on first acquaintance, but we need to ask ourselves why that is so. Could it be something in us that makes it difficult for us to appreciate their standpoint? Such honest introspection could lead to a lively struggle with the text and even to seeing them as friends, not as enemies. Indeed, that could lead to a change in our perspectives. End quote. My reflection after reading this essay is that the imprecatory psalms simply show, in painful and graphic detail, what other psalms and prophecies mean by judgment. If you are a Christian who is put off by the imprecatory psalms, then I ask, what do you expect when Christ returns to judge evil? A slap on the wrist? Then what is the salvation from judgment that we are so grateful for? If we are shocked by the violence in the psalms, let that be a warning to evildoers of the wrath of God to come. Because for us who are covered by the blood of Jesus, these verses are a relief, for we have been passed over from that violence. And more importantly, these verses are a comfort to those presently suffering, for them to know that God is indeed, and remains so, the judge of all the earth. The idea that churches are removing selected psalms from, from scheduled reading is troubling. How does that align with the teaching that all of Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, and inerrant? If we can take some of the Scripture out of reading circulation, what stops us from removing the uncomfortable parts from the Bible? The imprecatory psalms are not difficult to understand, hence why it's so distressing. Instead of removing it, we should teach it. Wenham's essay here is helpful. And, and just for this essay alone, you should download the free book as offered by Faith Life in November. This essay would be a useful reference for anyone who stumbles at the imprecatory psalms. Who is this book for? Personally, I think this book should be a Logos free book of the month instead of a Faith Life free book of the month because it's more technical than Faith Life's usual offerings. Some readers might protest because they read it and it was fine, it's okay, and would recommend it to anyone. To that I say, let's take the analogy of cameras. 
Some cameras are like the phones you use. They are point and shoots. You click on button and it takes the shot without fuss. Professional cameras like DSLRs require you to fiddle with the aperture, shutter speed and ISO settings. These are technical terms. This might shock you, but the professional cameras do not have auto mode. You have to learn the technical terms to use the cameras. Then there is the prosumer camera. <laughs> now, these cameras, prosumer cameras, sit between the mass professional DSLRs and the mass consumer point and shoots. This book is like a prosumer camera. It is written by a scholar for a scholarly ish audience. However, if you don't let yourself be intimidated by the tone and form, the essays are accessible enough for you to gain remarkable insights. And this leads to my main criticism. I question the decision to publish this as a collection of essays. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy reading a good collection of essays. My next book review is the Logos free book of the month for November, Scripture and Truth, which is a collection of 12 essays from 12 authors. Gordon Wenham is the sole essayist in this book, which consists of eight essays on one topic, the Psalms. And the essays have been arranged so that the first essay tells us how the Psalms were used, the third introduces us to the canonical approach, and the seventh and eighth apply that canonical approach. So there is clearly an editorial move to link one essay to the next, which begs the question, why not rewrite the essays to make it a regular book instead of a collection. A rewrite will remove the repetitions of the background and the, some of the points that he makes, and these repetitions appear between essays. An introduction and conclusion chapter will cement the ideas presented here. When I finished reading the last essay, it, it was the end. I felt the ending was just too abrupt. It is ironic that I'm calling for a stronger editorial hand for a book that emphasizes and celebrates the role of the editor behind the Psalms. In conclusion, this book will help you read and learn from the Psalms. It will help you reclaim an appreciation and love for how the book comes together, but because of the scholarly tone and emphasis, it is not clear to the casual reader how to pray and praise with the Psalms. For that, I recommend you get Donald Whitney's book, Praying the Bible. It's only 112 pages. This is a Reading and Readers review of The Psalter Reclaim, Praying and Praising with the Psalms by Gordon Winham. Listed for $11.99 in Amazon Kindle and $16.99 in Faith Life. But it's now for November, and for November only, a free book from the good folks at Faith Life. If you like the idea of reading the Psalms from first to last, you might appreciate every Psalm by poor Bishop Hooper. Uh, poor Bishop Hooper is a husband and wife uh, music team, and every Psalm is a three-year project to release a song based on a Psalm every week, from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150. So that would make it a great complimentary listen while you pray and praise with the Psalms in its entirety. Let me end today's podcast with a clip from Psalm 1. And uh, to hear the rest of the song and more, please search Poor Bishop Hooper. 
Joy, the joy.